It's good to be with you today. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark 6. Mark chapter 6. It's good to be back in the book of Mark. And I need to add that it was really good to sing that song. I would encourage you, if you didn't pay too close attention to it, to get a copy from one of the guys and meditate on those lyrics this week. It's sweet, helpful, good. And it fits well with our text in Mark chapter 6 today. Let me read it for us, and I think you'll see why. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region And began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to help lead a whitewater rafting trip Obviously, in preparing for something like this, you're very much aware of the dangers of the event, especially with teenagers. The number one cause of fatality in children actually being drowning, I prepared myself for that fact, but also in preparing for the trip, I was exposed to another fact, a lesser known one, but equally as dangerous, called Avir. A-V-I-R. It stands for Aquatic Victim Instead of Rescuer Syndrome. Avir occurs when somebody nobly tries to go ahead to the aid of a drowning child or teenager and actually ends up drowning themselves due to the child's instinctive drowning response. Once the body recognizes that it can't get the air, it will latch on to anything for the opportunity for life leading to the peril of some well-meaning rescuers. Statistically, it killed, based on the research, 103 people in Australia between 1992 and 2010, 81 people in New Zealand between 1980 and 2012, which is just enough to tell us that it happens. It's something to be looking out for. But I think what's most shocking about Avir is the fact that it opens us up to the possibility 
that we can resist our own rescue, whether we intend to or not. Endangered people themselves can actually endanger themselves further. Hurting people can actually hurt other people and themselves. Now, on a much lighter note, I think we see this in extremely small ways. I'll say this rather tongue-in-cheek, but having been a parent now for almost eight years and having raised several toddlers, it is interesting that even toddlers, in their hunger, passionately resist the food that will strengthen them. Children, in their sickness, fiercely oppose the medicine that will heal them. Teens, in their foolishness, no offense guys, flee the advice that will guide them. Men, in their cluelessness, ignore the directions or instructions that will help them. Women, in their emotion, resist the logic that will assist them. Adults, in their aging, avoid the diet and exercise that will enliven them. Isn't it possible that this help-hindering, rescue-resisting can affect us spiritually as well? I mean, if we do this in large and small ways, as adults and children, as we avert the, the means or even obscure the means that would be available to us for our own good, is it not possible this morning that we do this spiritually as well? This is important because I wouldn't have to probe too far in the congregation today to find those of you who may be here with needs this morning. Physically exhausted, Emotionally raw, fearful or anxious about someone or something, feeling stressed. It just comes with life. Actually, I think there's probably more of you who feel that way than the other. That's why I'm glad for all of us that texts like this have been written. Mark so far has effectively been showing us Jesus' divine power. We've seen it in every chapter. His power, His authority. For those of you who have been with us in our study of Mark, or for those of you who may be new, it's a helpful review. Mark is simply writing this historical account gleaned from the lips of the Apostle Peter himself to show us the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the divine Messiah. Now, in showing that, most of the highlight, most of the emphasis has been on Jesus himself, but as we've seen several times, Mark will occasionally show us not only Jesus, but the response to Jesus. Here he once again shows Jesus' power against the backdrop of a very foolish response. The men are about to receive this divine help from the Lord and if they could have ran, they would have. So the text not only shows us our help, that's what I want you to see. Mark does something interesting here that he has not yet done. He shows us through this story that some, even Jesus' own followers themselves, will actually resist the rescue and the relief being offered them. That's where verse 52 
really stands out to us. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were utterly, I mean, excuse me, their hearts were hardened. Mark is careful to record their foolish response. This isn't just about Jesus' power, but it's also about the disciples' refusal to accept that power when they really needed it. And what we'll see today through this story is four different phases that will enable us to receive the help offered us in Jesus, even when we may tend to resist it. Four phases to this story that will enable us to receive Jesus' help. The first phase is that of separation, verses 45 to 47. It's pretty clear to see in the text. Look at it again. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now, just from a literary perspective, it's clear to see that the text is emphasizing Jesus' forceful separation of himself from his disciples. It says it two different times. I mean, on the heels of an exciting day where he has just fed 5,000 plus people, the text literally records that Jesus forces his disciples to get into a boat and head toward Bethsaida. Notice that in your translation there, it would be something like the word made in the ESV or compel that you may see in the New American Standard, pressured, urged. It's a very forceful term. It doesn't just say, he said, suggested. He is actually making them get into the boat and he wants them to leave him and to make this three to four mile journey from the northwest corner of the lake to the northeast corner of the lake. That geographical detail will be important later. And this leaves Jesus alone. What's he doing here? It just says that he bids farewell and says goodbye, if you can do that, to a ravenous crowd. They were so excited about him producing the bread. John chapter 6 records for us that they had political ambitions in this and they thought that they would even make him king at that time. And Jesus basically stays back to calm them down and send them home. Maybe he didn't want his disciples to get caught up in that fervor as well. But... The point is, and Mark reemphasizes it in verse 47, when evening came, the disciples are on the sea, Jesus is on the land, he's in prayer, and they are struggling to obey his command. Jesus has separated himself from his disciples. Now, you know the story. You just heard me read it. You know where this thing's headed. But, but I want to point out right here that Jesus is once again sending his disciples into a scenario in which they must see their need. It reminds us of the effectiveness of personal experience. Jesus was a master teacher. He didn't just teach with words, but he taught with scenarios and actions, and he knew to get these men in this scenario. Albert Einstein said it this way, learning is experience. Everything else is just information. I think we know this to be true. Way before Einstein, Jesus also knew that for somebody to really learn something, they need to go through it themselves. Experience is the best teacher. We call this in our day Hard Knocks University. It's a great degree. 
When you have to experience something on your own, it forces you to learn lessons that would otherwise not be known. Sometimes words fail, and experiences need to be orchestrated to learn the most memorable of lessons. So Jesus sets these men up again. He did the same thing in Mark 4, 35 to 41, but he wasn't so far away. Remember that when he calms the sea? He was underneath the helm of the boat, or the stern of the boat at that time, and then they begin to experience this storm. He's close by, but he's not involved. They can get to him, but they still have to suffer the trial on their own, at least initially. He does a similar thing in Mark 6, 35 to 37 in the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, they come to him with a complaint like, hey, it's getting late, we need to feed these people. And do you remember how Jesus puts the pressure back on them? He says, no, you feed these people. Forcing them to really think for a moment, how in the world are we going to feed all these people? But here's the ultimate test so far. Now Jesus isn't anywhere near. He's up on a mountain praying They are presumably miles away on the Galilean Sea, and they're going to experience this major obstacle to obedience. And I would only have you remember as we transition into the next phase that whatever happens next, Jesus intended for it to happen. With that note in mind, let's move on from the separation from Jesus to the next phase of the account, which is the revelation of Jesus in verse 48. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. So Jesus here knows that his disciples are suffering. And in this, he intended for them to behold his mastery over the fiercest and most uncontrollable of of enemies. Some have debated and wondered whether or not this was some miraculous insight that Jesus had or whether this was something that he could plainly see. Well, the geography of that area would lead us to believe that it wouldn't be too hard for Jesus on a moonlit night to be able to see these disciples only a few miles away from his mountaintop vantage point. He was interested in them, which indicates to me that he was probably praying for them, knowing the trial that, was about, that they were about to experience themselves. He's interested, even though they're separated, he's still interested, he wants to know what's going on, and the text says that he saw them making headway painfully against a prevailing headwind. Now, I think you wouldn't have too much trouble imagining why this would be a painful experience. If it's a three to four mile from the plain where they're at to Bethsaida, where they're headed, you could imagine rowing that far in a heavy boat. You've ever been on a rowing machine or you've ever rowed a boat yourself? It is painful, especially among the lower back area. But then to do that with a prevailing headwind? So if you could imagine with me that we put in a boat uh, right by the exit here at Naples Park. And if you were to go north and try to work your way against a prevailing headwind all the way up to the Bonita Springs exit, tell me how you think that would go for you. Or for those of you who live south, to go all the way down to Pine Ridge. That's difficult. It's difficult just to row that way. But then to have a wind blowing in your face at 20, 30 miles per hour? It's near impossible, but these men are struggling against it anyway, and the text records that it was an exhausting day. I think we forget sometimes because we break up these passages into little paragraphs that this has been a really long day. Do you remember what was happening? 
They had just got back from their exhausting mission in which Jesus had sent them out with minimal provisions to do his work, and he had decided that, you know what, these guys are exhausted, we need a vacation. That's what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. They were going to try to go and get away, and they were going to have this relaxing day together, and the people start seeing Jesus and the disciples on the, the lake making their way to their private retreat, and they accost them and say, do stuff for us. The, the rest was interrupted already. And then they deal with thousands of people feeding them food. It's finally nighttime. The vacation day has been ruined. And now they're rowing. And the text records that this happened around the third or the, yes, the third, fourth watch of the night. The way the Romans divided up time, this would be somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. They've probably been rowing against the prevailing headwind for at least, conservatively estimating, six hours and that's why I again ask you about a rowing machine. You ever been on one? I can't stay on the thing for more than 30 minutes. And they've been doing this for six hours. They're exhausted. It is the darkest part of the night. And I think what makes this thing the worst is that they've been exerting all this effort only to be blown off course. Verse 53 will record for us that they actually changed their destination, which assumes that the wind probably blew them more toward the middle of the lake than the direction that they were actually advancing. It's futility at its worst to expend energy on something that their Lord had told them to do and then for them not to be able to make any progress. That's frustrating. But Jesus ordained it. Even the Nazis used that as a means of psychological torture in World War II where men were forced to work two four-hour shifts per day digging holes and then filling them back in again to only wake up again the next day to dig a hole and fill it back in again. It's that experience of constantly running on the hamster wheel, if you will, making an effort, a strenuous effort, to do something good, something well-meaning, something for the Lord in obedience to Him and to not see fruit come from it, to not see any payoff. Can you identify with that? And then the text records, having seen them, there's a main verb here that you, invites us to see Jesus coming to them. It says that he came to them. That's the emphasis of the sentence in the original language. And this makes sense to us. Jesus is going to come to them, but what confuses us about this particular text is this little phrase that he was intending to pass by them. You ever wonder what that means? Like, why would he come to them and just walk right on by them? Well, there's a couple of things that might be helpful for you to know one that in the ESV it makes it its own sentence when it's not its own sentence it's actually a participial phrase modifying the main verb he came to them so this isn't the main idea like he intended to go by them the other thing that that makes this difficult is just the way we understand the term pass by Peter originally preaching this message Mark having heard it intentionally used the particular Greek word here that I refer to in a moment but before I get into the significance of that word, let me give you its basic definition. Literally speaking, the word here means to come or go beside. It's broken into to two parts. The first of which you would recognize, para. We say parallel lines, a paralegal. 
It means alongside. And then the other verb is to come or go. So basically, if you were to read this literally, it says Jesus was intending to come or go alongside them. Beside them, not past them, as we would often think. It could mean that in some cases. But having understanding, or understanding the literal word, now we need to get to the significance because we need to get who was originally reading this. You're constantly going to hear me say that. What would the original audience have thought? It's clear to think that Mark is writing this to Roman believers. Now, I know that you would think Roman believers are Gentile, but there was a high population of Jews in the AD 50s, and that was where the evangelistic ministry of the church typically started, in synagogues, and then they would move out to more pagan uh, areas. So the first readers of Mark's gospel are primarily Jewish, and when they hear this language, having read their Greek Old Testaments, they see something extremely significant here. This term, pass by, is very vivid for those familiar with the Old Testament because it was the same term that was used in Exodus 33, verses 17 through Exodus 34, verse 7, where Moses was begging for God's presence And God said, I will pass by you. And he reveals himself. Remember it says that he sees the back part of the glory of God. This is is the language of Old Testament theophany. That's a theological term that means God, theos, phaneo, to reveal an appearance. An appearance of God. When, when God himself, the invisible God of the universe, actually would show himself in some type of physically evident form. And it doesn't happen much in the Old Testament, but the two places in which it does happen, Exodus 33 and 34, and then in 1 Kings chapter 17, both of those are significant moments of revelation. And we see that same word connected with what's going on right here. Jesus walking on the water, is intending to reveal God to them. He is revealing his divine status to them once more. And what you need to understand to catch this fully is that walking on the sea was something that only God could do. And all of you would say, yes, of course, only somebody like God could walk on the sea. But you say that on the basis of science. You know how physics works. (laughs) And certainly they knew how basic physics would work as well. Uh, Things don't float unless they have less mass. But they thought of it from a totally different angle. It wasn't just a scientific problem for them. It was something more ominous, something more spiritual. Because for the Old Testament Jew, for the, the Jews of antiquity, the sea represented a powerful and unruly enemy that needed to be contained by Yahweh. You look no further than Genesis chapter 1 or Job 38 to see that. They were always scared of the sea. They were not a sea-loving people. The Hebrews even attributed dangerous power to the sea. We see that in Psalm 93 verses 3 and 4. And in some cases, the sea was sometimes used as a metaphor for the attack of their enemies, as in Jeremiah 6.23. This is why, by the way, the deliverance at the Red Sea was the defining moment of their national history, Exodus 15. Just as we would look back to 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the defeat of Great Britain, and the war for the... I mean, like, that's our defining moment. Their defining moment was when God himself showed up, conquered the sea, and destroyed all their enemies. It was the sea. It's what made it so special. 
Thus, as they read their Old Testaments, they would ask, as was asked in Job 9.8, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? As they read their Old Testaments, they would hear the latter verses of Psalm 77 exclaim, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. They would remember Isaiah 43, 16. The Lord makes a way in the sea, a path in mighty waters. God himself is being revealed in Jesus as doing something that only Creator God could do. Who but God could conquer the mighty, raging sea? I wish we could see this. I wish I could see it with my own eyes. Here Christ walks to them in their pain, literally, in the darkness, and their frustration, and their despair, and it vividly shows them his complete mastery over this seemingly unconquerable enemy. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it went about. But somehow he stayed on top of those waves. They flattened out for him just like the sand does underneath our feet on the beach. And he makes his way to them, and this great mythical adversary is reduced to dirt underneath the feet of Jesus Christ. What we need to notice here is that their greatest need in that moment is not physical relief, but it's spiritual understanding. The the solution to their dilemma is for them to know who Jesus is. He is God in human flesh and where Jesus is, that he is right beside them in their suffering. And what this reminds us today, no matter what we're enduring, is that we must know our God. We need to remember that He sees us in moments of pain and frustration and darkness and despair and futility. And He knows your weakness and your frailty and your limitations and your struggles and your frustrated aspirations. It's a wonderful lesson from this text. And I would also add this note. Sometimes we're tempted to think that such distress is a consequence of sin. You ever think that way? Like, what in the world am I doing to experience so much hardship? Is there some sin in my life? Doesn't this text show us otherwise? Could the suffering that's going on in your life right now be a testimony not to your sinfulness, but maybe your sanctification? These men were actually obeying Jesus and experiencing this hardship. They weren't disobeying Him. This was a part of His plan all along. The text reminds us that sometimes hardship is a byproduct of obedience of all things. Why? Why would He allow such things? Why is it our lives easier? Why does spiritual gain seem so closely tied to physical and emotional pain? Why would God limit your time when you want to give more? Your money when you want to invest more? Your energy and your health when you want to serve more? I think the simple answer is that He intends for us to see Him. He longs for us to know our limitations so that we would know His limitlessness. He allows us to feel our need so that we can know His power and His provision and His peace. 
This is why the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-10. through 10, Listen well to this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardship and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is God trying to show you of himself in your need today? You think you need more resources. You think you need more energy. You think you need different circumstances. But what the text tells us is what you really need is to understand the Savior. And so the account moves on. We've seen the separation, the revelation. And now let's look at the consolation in verses 49 and 51. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now, isn't this amazing? Even though they mistake Jesus' undeniable power, they mistake it not only, but they mistake it with a fanciful superstition. Jesus allays their fears by assuring them of his identity. The text places a this kind of adversative word at the beginning of verse 49. Mark loves to connect his sentences with and, 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 and. But every once in a while, he throws in the little particle, but. When he puts in that, he is actually showing us that he's going to change the expected direction of the narrative. You would continue to think there would be a logical sequence, but when you see but, it's going to change. It goes somewhere else. What's going to change here? Well, here you would think that this revelation of Jesus would immediately bring relief and serenity for these disciples. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, Jesus shows himself to them. You would logically expect that the next thing would be, and they all rejoice that Jesus was there to save the day. But, that doesn't happen. Instead, the revelation of Jesus actually brings confusion and terror. In their mental exhaustion, I mean, let's cut them a break. Their physical exhaustion, in the darkness of the early morning, they think that Jesus is a ghost. Greek word, phantasma, where we get phantom. The belief in ghosts had been around for 3,000 years by this point, based on what we know of history. Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, all had some type of belief in the ethereal, the supernatural. And the Hebrews had obviously picked this up, this conception from the cultures around them. But what was interesting about the Jews at this time, according to their superstition, was they believed that the appearance of a ghost at night meant imminent disaster, ruin, or death. To see a ghost on the sea, which was already a dark place for them, at night equaled certain destruction. <laughs> 
Now, they don't have any basis for this, but this is just the kind of culture that they grew up with. This is what they naturally revert to. And the text even invites us to hear them crying out. The term is a loud, audible cries of grown men who are expecting to lose their lives. It's panic at its best. Even says that they were literally being shaken in terror. Maybe your text says trembled. But it's a passive verb. It means to involuntarily shake. Whatever this event was, it had triggered their flight or fight response, flooding their bodies with adrenaline, causing them to respond involuntarily. And this is terror at its best when it's supposed to be peace. The ending of this surprising sentence leads us to another surprising adversative. Remember, and, 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 where you've got a but, and then he goes and he gives another but. Something else changes that shocks us. What is it that shocks us? But immediately he spoke to them and said to them, Fear not, it is I. Not only is their response to Jesus' revelation surprising, but also Jesus' response to their trepidation is surprising. What surprises us is that he does not condemn their ignorance or critique their superstition. I mean, I would think that this would be a time for a good tongue lashing. I have revealed myself to you as the feeder of the 5,000. You have seen me conquer a storm with the mere sound of my voice. And you would think that this is a ghost? Something that doesn't even exist? That would be me. But rather, he quickly and simply consoles them by reassuring them of his presence. His voice is like an anchor to their storm-tossed souls. Notice he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He doesn't chide them, he doesn't reprimand them, he consoles them. And there's two components to this. The first is this positive and negative command that we always see with Jesus where he says, take heart, be courageous, and on the end he says, do not be afraid. They're antithetical to one another. Jesus reminds them once more that his limitless, unexplainable, supernatural power and authority is nothing to be feared, but it's something to be utilized. He intends for his followers to be courageous and free from fear. Always, Jesus is telling people not to fear, fear, anxiety, stress. They're expressions, and I say this kindly because I know what it is to be fearful and stressed. But they're expressions of faithlessness and disobedience. It's not okay, beloved, to feel this way. Not by Jesus' terms. Will it happen? Yes. But Jesus intends for us to move out of that. This is why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles today, but seek first the kingdom of God. This is why it says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. This is why Paul tells his, his protege in Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 7, remember this? For God has not given us the spirit of fear or intrepidation, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, that's the command. That's the first aspect of this. 
But if we only look at the positive and negative command, we're going to miss the ultimate point here. The ultimate point is the enabling reality behind these commands. And it stands in the center of both the positive and the negative. Positive command, be courageous. Middle, negative command, don't be afraid. What's in the middle? The enabling reality, that is Jesus' divine presence. The only way you would ever not be afraid and be able to have courage is to recognize who Jesus is. In our translation, it says, it is I. But literally, in Greek, it's ego eimi, ego being I, eimi being am. Ego eimi. The people who would read these uh, Greek translations of the Old Testament, by the way, the Septuagint, they would immediately recognize ego eimi to be the same thing we see in our Old Testament Bibles, I am, or in all caps, the Lord This is the covenant name of God. Jesus is disclosing himself to be not just a God-like figure, but God himself. And when they recognize that Jesus is that, only then would they be able to not have fear. And only then would they be able to have courage. There's an enabling reality to this. It is the presence of Yahweh, God himself, and the person of Christ that was to calm their fears and relieve their anxieties. And notice not only what he says, but what he does. It says in verse 51 that he got into the boat with them. He entered into their fright and their distress, and he intends for them to be consoled by his presence. So then, once he is with them, once they identify with him and who he is, he then exercises his power to calm the sea. The presence of Christ precedes the display of His power. The presence of Christ precedes the display of His power. In one of C.S. Lewis's lesser-known Narnia chronicles, The Horse and His Boy, there's a closing scene in the book where the main characters are being threatened by the evil, proud, and cruel Rabidash. While he's spewing his threats, Aslan, The Christ figure in Lewis's story appears from over the sea without warning, but exactly when needed. And the text reads, Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. We don't typically see it coming, do we? Yet this text shows us that the empowering presence of Christ comes to us when we least expect it. Believe it or not, contrary to what you'll hear from prosperity preachers on TBN, or from the ultra-popular feel-good megachurch down the street, the peace and power of Jesus is most readily felt in our weakness and pain and need. Not in our strength, our pleasure, and our plenty. God, our help is near. This is how He consoles us. Practically speaking, what do we do then when we find ourselves enduring the brunt of negative emotions associated with following Jesus in a fallen world? 
In times of darkness and frustration and stress and anger, what do we say? If that's you this morning, if you're here and you're suffering in your obedience to Jesus, and if things seem harder than they should be, and you're weary and you're worried and you don't know how much longer you'll be able to row, notice the end. Take courage. Do not fear. But even more importantly, notice the means. The all-powerful Jesus who tramples on the source of your greatest enemy is greater than your trials and he is strongest in your weakness. That's the means. You want to get to the point where the anxieties melt away and you live life courageously, it will not come apart from understanding that Jesus has conquered your greatest enemy and he reveals himself to you as such. I really do pray, I prayed it this week, I pray that Romans 8 verses 32 to 39 never grow old to us. If you don't know what those verses are, you need to. And I'm not even going to tell you what they are because I want you to write them down and look them up. But I would summarize it this way and say, in that particular passage, Paul assures us that everything is going to be okay because Christ took care of our deepest need at the cross. We were all rebellious against him as the Isaiah passage had predicted earlier. And at the same time, he still came to us and met the greatest need. And if he meets the greatest need in our salvation, all we do is just come to him in repentance and faith and he gives us his righteousness. How much more will he be able to help us with the trials associated with this life in a fallen world? If he meets the eternal need, of course he'll meet the temporal one. Like Jesus appearing on the water, the cross of Jesus screams to us, God is with me. He is not against me. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, Justin, my life's pretty fine right now. I'm happy for you. Uh, just a warning, it probably won't be in a few weeks. It's just where we live. But maybe you are fine today. I'm okay with that, but I bet this is true. You probably know someone who's suffering in their obedience to Jesus. I'm not talking about someone who is suffering because they've rebelled against the Lord and they're experiencing the consequences of their own sin. I'm talking about people that you know that are really trying to love and serve Jesus and yet they are struggling. You know people who seem stressed and frustrated and exhausted and depressed and weary and worn down. What do you say to those people to help them? Can I tell you what not to do? Is that okay? Do not merely tell them to take courage and trust that everything will be okay. If you only give the positive and negative command without the enabling reality, you are not helping that brother or sister in Christ. I can't stand just Christian moralism, the way that we try to counsel one another. I do it too. But sometimes the best we have for a suffering brother or sister in Christ is a cat poster hanging onto a rope saying, hang in there. Do we not have anything better to offer? We have Jesus. 
We have to remind, this isn't just the preacher's job, this is your job. We have to come alongside people and remind them and speak truth to them in the midst of their darkness that, you know what, it's okay. Jesus has met the greatest problem. I don't know how he's going to meet this one, but I just trust that he will. What's the means? If it's not just merely giving them moralisms, the means is this, knowing Helping them know that the all-powerful Jesus has defeated their greatest enemy and is with us in our weakness. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Using Christ's words. Remember I said that was an anchor for their storm-tossed souls? Use his words. Using Christ's words, remind the suffering brother or sister of Jesus' presence, purpose, strength, sufficiency, power, and compassion. You know, I realize that even in our culture, we struggle just to have meaningful conversations in general much less spiritually edifying ones. If you have a hard time saying that face-to-face somebody with somebody, use a pen and a sheet of paper and write them a card. I would hope that we would grow into that point where we could have those types of serious conversations. But the point isn't your performance. The point is the power of the Word of Christ. That's what ministers to their souls. Gently lift their head from their circumstances to their Savior. This is our special obligation to one another, by the way, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We just finished this two-week series on the church and membership. This is where it all leads to, practically speaking. It's easy for you to shy away from people that you don't know that well. But once somebody says, hey, I want to be identified with this body, you're obligated, my friend, to come to them in their weakness. Maybe you're here today, and I don't want to sound too harsh, I want to encourage you as well. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I want to know more about how to do that. I would love to be able to encourage other people. Um, but hearing just some of the generalities you're speaking today, I don't know how to do that. Look, let me tell you what these pastors are here for to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you don't know how to encourage somebody with the gospel, come speak to us. That's, that's what we do. You know, even in, if it's not in the next few months, we're going to do it in a few months later. Soon in our course seminar classes, we're actually going to be offering a class on how to counsel other believers. Attend that class. Let us equip you for this type of ministry among the congregation because you know what it's like to be surrounded by circumstances and you know what it's like to need an outside voice to knock you out of that and to lift your head up. So that's the consolation that only Jesus can provide. And this consolation is obviously rooted in the revelation that we saw in verse 48, which we saw typically happens in moments of perceived separation, verses 45 and 47. Finally, then, we need to notice the culmination of all of this in verses 51 through 56. Mark's significant line, And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The main part of this story ends on a surprising note. Switching the focus of the text from Jesus' identity to the disciples' stupidity. I mean, you would think that you could just end this thing, but Mark, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have us understand that these men did not respond to this amazing revelation in the way that you would think. Their human response to the revelation and consolation is nothing short of astonishment. The word literally means a blown mind. Their mind was blown. Their mouths were open. They didn't know what was going on here. Interestingly, 
The literary weight of the entire text, as I mentioned earlier, rests on verse 52. Look at it again. Why were they astounded? Because they did not understand the loaves. It's connecting it back to the previous passage. But their hearts were hardened. Why did they not get it? Well, they didn't get this lesson because they didn't get the previous one. They still couldn't connect or remember what Jesus did in the past with who he is in the present. That's why you need to understand this term, hardness of heart. Contrary to our Western notions of the heart being the seat of the emotions, for people in this culture and in that time, to have a hardened heart just simply meant that they were being thick-headed, they were very insensitive, they were slow to respond. I think a, a term that we would resonate with a little more clearly than hardness of heart would be a sluggishness or slowness of faith. They're slow to respond. They're slow to connect what Jesus has done in the past with what they need in the present. Do you not ever suffer that? Short-term memory loss? You've seen his faithfulness time and time and time again, and then all of a sudden a new situation presents itself, and it's like, man, what am I going to do? You're going to do the same thing that you did the other 500 times you had to rely on Jesus, but we just forget And I'm glad that these moments of honesty are recorded for us here in the text. Because I don't know how many times I need to learn these lessons. What's theologically significant about this particular verse is that this handicap can be seen from the outsiders in chapter 4, verse 12. It's seen of the opponents of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 5. It said that they were hardened in heart. Later, Jesus will accuse the disciples these future founders of the church, of something similar in chapter 8, verses 17 and 21. So here's what I want you to see. Even though Mark is using this strong language, what he's doing here, he's allowing the reader to have a less flattering perception of the disciples that will be further developed in the rest of the gospel. The point is this. Even Jesus' most devoted followers sometimes fail to recognize him. It happens. There's, there's a gentleness about this verse that just, this whole passage that amazes me. That, that he get, didn't get it. They, we just failed to understand. No matter how long we've walked with Jesus, sometimes we forget. This, by the way, little verse becomes all the more significant when you look at the transition kind of summary verses that follow it. Look at verses 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And they got out of the boat, and the people immediately recognized him. Notice that. The disciples did not recognize him. The people do recognize him. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Ultimately, it's so obvious that this Jesus is the Messiah. And these men still don't get it. They know that this kind of stuff happens. They've seen him conquer the sea. They've seen him provide in the wilderness. They've seen him heal anybody and everybody that comes to him, yet they still fail to understand. The only thing I could say then is we, in our darkest hour, often experience forces of chaos and we're swallowed up in our own exhaustion and distress and we're unable to see and comprehend but all the while, God is still, despite our response, revealing himself alongside us the entire way. This will happen sometimes. 
Just as doctors can get sick, fitness instructors can be unhealthy, investors can go bankrupt, teachers can get stumped, so also believers can sometimes misunderstand, overlook, fail to discern the power and the presence of Christ, as obvious as it may be. Has this ever happened to you? If it does, I think a practical application here is, one, don't beat yourself up. You're not in heaven yet. You still live in a fallen body that can fall prey to mental weakness and worn down emotions. You understand me? Fallen bodies can affect spiritual performance. This is why our Lord continues to send us trials. We don't get it all in one lesson. You're not perfect and complete yet. That's why James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need multiple lessons. <laughs> you don't get it all in one dose. You ever read Romans 7 when you feel discouraged? That's that famous passage where Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And he goes back and forth for verse after verse after verse after verse. And then, this is where our Bibles can be a little deceiving because we have these chapter breaks inserted in there. But in the original, there's no chapter break. You have Paul's just litany of frustration followed by Romans 8.1 that says this, There is now, therefore, in light of this frustration, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. If you fail to get the lesson sometimes, pray for forgiveness, move on. And may I also add, if you don't beat yourself up, you also shouldn't beat others up. Trying to work with people, trying to help them understand God's goodness and they don't seem to get it they seem to reject your counsel it's okay you do it too be gentle in your help one of the things that I find interesting I was meeting with a church member this week an incoming church member I'll talk about tonight and she said Pastor Justin what's your vision for the church now when somebody asks me this I don't always know how to respond because this isn't a business. It's not like I, have, you know, I can know concretely what's going to happen over the next few years. But yes, I do, as a pastor, have plans and aspirations and prayers, I guess would probably be a better term. What's your prayer for this church? Well, one of the things that, that I pray for this church, especially this week, is I pray that Faith Bible Church would be proficient at leaning on Jesus. I pray that our people would not only suffer problems, but suffer them well. Not that we would be proficient, but that we would be proficient on being dependent upon the Lord. And at the same time, that we would help others do the same. That's what I want for Faith Bible Church. That's what God wants from His church. I pray that our, our small groups, as me and Phil have discussed in times past, that's why I say that I want our, our small groups to be a place where sound doctrine meets strong relationships. We, we need those times in which we can speak biblical truth into people's lives, and you can't do that if you're distant from them. So not only do I want us individually to be proficient in leaning on Jesus, but I want us also to be adept and skilled at helping other people learn to lean on Jesus, and not just in small groups, but in one-on-one. -on -one. 
and our personal piety and testimonies of grace that could happen in members' meetings. I hope that our church is characterized by people who are not free from problems. I can't promise that. But people who are good at handling problems insofar as they depend upon their Lord. But for us to get there, you have a responsibility. I'd summarize it this way. First, if you haven't done it yet, you need to recognize that God plans trials for your good. Recognize. If, if the health, wealth, gospel, and prosperity movement have taught you otherwise, unlearn that lesson now. God sends trials for our good. Recognize. Second, receive Receive what God is trying to teach you. He wants to teach you about Himself. He intends to reveal Himself through the trial as the conqueror of our greatest enemy. Don't resist trials, but learn from them. Know what God is trying to teach you. Find His sufficiency to be fresh and new once more. You would also need to rely not just receive the trial, but rely, rely on Him. He is with you in your time of deepest need. Practically speaking, I think these first three things, recognize, receive, rely, could happen or begin to happen right now at the close of this service as we pray. As I pray, maybe you need to be praying. Lord, help me to recognize th these plans and I want to receive what you're teaching me about yourself and I'm going to rely on you in the days to come. It could start with prayer. But there's a fourth thing. You say, you know what? I've got those things down. I recognize trials. I receive what the Lord's trying to teach me. I rely on Him. Well, look, you need to rehearse this for other people because there are some who are not there yet. If you think you are proficient at handling trials, I assure you that there are probably scores of more who do not. Rehearse these truths for other members going through the same thing. So I would say not only pray, but maybe right now with a pen and a sheet of paper or on your iPhone, you need a plan to speak to someone this week about this. Maybe you're not ready for the conversation yet. Maybe it's just the card. But I assure you, if you walk out of here with somebody on your heart and mind, and you do not minister to them in their need, more than likely, you are disobeying the prompting of our Lord. We have an obligation to one another. We know the truth. We know people are hurting. We should help them. So, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll praise. We're going to praise our Lord for His mighty power in our time of need. Let's pray together. Father, you are our help in ages past, our hope in times to come, our shelter from the weary blast, and our eternal home. Because of our own fallenness, we miss that sometimes. We resist the circumstances that would lead us to understand that, oh God, change our hearts today so that we would receive your help. May we find you to be more sufficient, more sweet, more strong, despite the deepest of trials. Or if there's someone here that doesn't even know that rescuing power of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and in his resurrection, 
Oh, I pray that they would know you today. Pray they talk to one of us about it today. And if there are some who are here who are suffering, oh, show them your glory today. May they see your sufficiency. And for those of us who are doing well, or move us to minister to others in their need. And so making Faith Bible Church what you want it to be, for it's in your Son's name I pray and ask it. Amen.